our Bibles this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. Special study this morning. If you're with us and you don't have a Bible this morning, there are men coming up the aisles right now. They have lots of Bibles. If you just wave to them and get their attention, they'll be happy to deliver a Bible into your hands. And then you can hear the Word of God and you can read it at the same time, allowing it to have double the impact in your life. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And when he, that is Jesus, had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass as he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you. Whereas you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. And so those who were sent went their way, and they found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to Jesus from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if I, if, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city, that is Jerusalem, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from you. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. How different the history of the nation of Israel would be and the Jewish people if they had recognized him as their promised Messiah the first time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Jesus this morning. Thank you for his word, his life, his wisdom. And as we have sung so much about this morning, Father, we thank you for yours and for his love for us and your involvement in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would meet with us by your Holy Spirit, through your word, Freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us a fresh appreciation, Lord, for the truths that we're going to be studying here this morning. We pray, Lord, for each one that stands before you today that is not yet a Christian, has not yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, that today, Lord, they would hear your voice. 
and see, Lord, the witness of your scripture to Jesus and come into your kingdom. We pray for that great miracle in their lives today. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The events described in these verses in Luke's gospel took place on the Sunday prior to Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins. And that Sunday immediately before Jesus' crucifixion, the Sunday of the week that he was crucified, is now commonly known in our culture as Palm Sunday, the day when Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city of uh, Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago. And so today, later in this week, is going to be Good Friday. Next Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. So this Sunday, the Sunday before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, is the anniversary of this great event that occurred in Jesus' life and ministry uh, 2,000 years ago, that ancient and first Palm Sunday. The event of that first Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago are significant to each of us who are sitting here today and I think uh, significant, of course, to every single person in the whole wide world. And it's not simply because these events in Jesus' life took place on the week of his crucifixion, so close to the day of his death, but because of the remarkable way that the events of that day, that ancient Palm Sunday, call upon each and every one of us to recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah and the promised Savior of the world. And so that each and every one of us in this room would not leave this room this morning short of recognizing him to be the promised Savior of the world. And I want you to notice the events of that day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we notice in verses 35 to 38 that it began as a very joyous event. You can almost picture it in your mind. I mean, today we have a beautiful spring day out there. It's supposed to be the mid-70s before it's all said and done today. Well, Jerusalem and Israel is very much like California in terms of climate and temperature and all, central and southern California more than northern California. And so it would have been a beautiful, beautiful spring day in Jerusalem. And Jesus is riding on a donkey, and as he's riding on that donkey, he crests the top of the Mount of Olives on the eastern side of Jerusalem, and then he begins to make his way down that Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley to then begin to make his way up through the Kidron Valley into the area uh, of the, the city of, uh, of Jerusalem itself. And all of this was just as the prophet Zechariah had prophesied would be true of the coming Messiah. He declared, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, that is Jerusalem. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
And so the Holy Spirit had recorded that when the Messiah came uh, and was uh, uh, unveiled himself to be uh, the Messiah of the world, the promised Savior of the world that God had promised from the very beginning back in Genesis chapter 3, that when he ultimately entered into Jerusalem, revealing himself to be the Messiah of the world, he wouldn't come on some, you know, snorting stallion in the way that you would expect a king to come into the city, but that he would come into the city on the back of a donkey just as Jesus did. And along the way, a great multitude, we're told in Matthew's gospel, a great multitude gathered to greet Jesus as he was on that donkey and making his way uh, into the city of Jerusalem. And they were so excited about Jesus and about this day, they began to take off their very outer garments and lay them down on the road before Jesus and, and the donkey. Matthew's gospel tells us they began to lay palm branches down onto the road and thus this day has become known as Palm Sunday. And so the crowd is excited, they're shouting, they're praising God, and then spontaneously, unrehearsed, nobody planned any of this, but spontaneously and unrehearsed, they begin to sing out portions of the Messianic Psalms of the Old Testament to Jesus. And Matthew's Gospel tells us further that they cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And the word Hosanna means save now, save now. Luke tells us in verse 38 some of what they were uh, crying out to the Lord. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So this recognition of the crowd that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. And all of this, they were, uh, they were acknowledging that recognition of him, that he was the Messiah promised by God. So you've got this scene that's just a pure, absolutely pure, unfettered, Joy, the people are so excited. I can tell you, I can never read this passage except that I feel that I'm in a crowd. I can see the donkey. I can see Jesus. Never his face. I never see his face. I will see his face, but I don't. I feel myself in the crowd and trying to look and to see, and he's passing by, and can I get a glimpse of him? And I can so easily and readily put myself in that scene. It almost pulls me right into the scene that always has. All of this that's going on was then protested, we're told in verse 39, by the Jewish religious leaders. They recognized what was happening. They recognized that the people were declaring Jesus to be the promised king, the promised Messiah and Savior of the world. And, and so they, in recognizing what the crowd was doing and that Jesus was doing nothing to deter them from recognizing him as such, they demanded that he silence his disciples from singing these psalms, these messianic psalms, uh, to Jesus. Jesus' response to them in verse 40, he said to them, 
I tell you that if these should keep silent, the crowd, then the stones would immediately cry out. Would have been the first rock concert right there. I couldn't help myself. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. We're sitting right there on the surface. What could I do? And what Jesus was saying, in effect, was that it would do no good to silence them. Because if they stopped singing these messianic psalms that God had given in the Old Testament to be sung to the Messiah on the day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, then if people were not going to sing those messianic psalms, then the rocks themselves, as a miracle of God, would sing them out to the Messiah. But they would be sung one way or another. If not by man, then by stones. The quotation here is their singing is from Psalm 118. The psalmist writes there in verse 21, I will praise you, he says to God, for you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice in it and be glad in it. And we think of that as a day where we wake up in the morning and we say, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not the fulfillment of what God was speaking in uh, Psalm 118. He was speaking about a specific day in human history, the day of Jesus' triumphal entry, And then he goes on in the psalm to say, by the Spirit of God, Save now, Hosanna. I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. And then we recognize from our text, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So you have this scene of just indescribable joy and blessing that is going on. And then we are told all of this joy in verse 41 immediately gives way to weeping. And Jesus begins to weep over Jerusalem. The Bible records only two times in which Jesus wept during his public ministry. The first time in John chapter 11 where Jesus was at the funeral of a close friend by the name of Lazarus. And the Bible says that Jesus wept, the shortest verse in the whole Bible. The word that's used for Jesus' weeping there, it means to weep silently. It's one of those things where somebody is weeping and the tears begin to well up in their eyes and they begin to go down their face. And if you didn't look sideways to look at them, you would never know that they were weeping. That's the weeping that Jesus was doing in that graveyard in the city of Bethany. Why was he weeping? He wasn't weeping because of Lazarus. He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead in just a few moments. He was weeping because he knew that when God had created man, that God had never intended for death to ever have a part in human history And as he watched the pain and the agony and the sorrow that death has brought into the world, even in the case of one single individual, 
It brought tears to his eyes. And here in this passage, the word that is used for Jesus' weeping is different from that, that other incident in his life. The word that is used means to bewail. It means to sob convulsively. It is a weeping that is inconsolable. As Jesus is weeping in this scene, his whole body is shaking as he is weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Now, that's quite a contrast between what's happening just moments before and then as he comes into the city and Jesus sees the city, he begins to weep with this kind of, of a strength and this kind of a depth. So something has happened here that really, really broke Jesus' heart. We ask ourselves, what is it that has broken his heart in the midst of this scene of such great joy? And the reason is given to us in verse 42 and then in verse 44. And the reason is that they, Jerusalem... And the nation of Israel in general did not know, verse 42, it's worth underlining, this your day. If you had known, even you especially, in this your day, the things that make for your peace. And then even more specifically, at the end of verse 44, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And Jesus lamented that the nation of Israel as a whole, the self-proclaimed experts in the Bible and in biblical knowledge, did not know the time of the coming of their Messiah. Now, what is this all about? How could Jesus be weeping over this? How could he be lamenting? How could he expect of them that they would know the very day of his triumphal entry. Over and over again in Jesus' public ministry, the three and a half years of his public ministry, the people were continually trying to uh, attempt to take him by force and make him king. The common people heard Jesus gladly. And they recognized in him the one that they wanted to be their king. They recognized him to be the promised Messiah. And over and over again, they tried to, to take him by force and make him proclaim himself to be this before the nation. And he wouldn't allow it. And he would typically declare something like, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. It's an interesting response. You look and you say, you came into the world to be the savior of the world. You came into the world for exactly this response that the common people are giving to you to acknowledge you as the Messiah as the promised King of Israel in the world. And now when we attempt to do the very thing that you've come into the world for, you won't allow us to do it. And always responding, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come. And yet finally on this day, verse 38, he allows the people to declare him the King, the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Why would he not do it, all of those other attempts, and yet allow them to proclaim him to be the king and the Messiah on this particular day? 
The answer is given to us in Daniel chapter 9. You can turn to it, and, uh, but uh, the Scripture will all be, so be put up on the screen uh, behind me. In verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9, the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel the prophet in order to declare the future of the nation of Israel and of Jerusalem to him. And he declares in verse 24 that this prophecy was to Daniel for your people and for your holy city. Who was Daniel's people? The Jews. Daniel was a Jew. What is the holy city of the Jews? It's Jerusalem. And the angel Gabriel declared in verse 24 that righteousness would one day mark the nation of Israel. And indeed it would mark the whole world. That rebellion would cease. There would be an end of sins. The reconciliation would be made for sin. That everlasting righteousness would be brought in. In other words, God would establish his kingdom uh, on the earth. All of the Old Testament visions and prophecies would be fulfilled. The Holy of Holies, the temple, uh, speaking of the millennial uh, temple in Ezekiel 40, uh, chapters 40 through 44, that they would, it would be anointed and it would be consecrated in Jerusalem. But then, but he went on to declare in verses 25 through 27 of Daniel 9 that all of these things would not transpire smoothly, but that it would be a very rocky road and a road full of surprises between that point of that prophecy and the establishing of God's kingdom on this earth. I want you to notice in verse 25 of Daniel chapter 9 that Gabriel's specific revelation concerning the coming of Messiah, where he refers to Messiah as Messiah the Prince. And here is what he communicated to Daniel specifically. Daniel, one day, verse 25, there's going to be a a decree given to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, which at the time was in comparative ruins. He went on to say that this rebuilding of the city would also include the rebuilding of the street and very, very significantly, the rebuilding of the wall. And that the rebuilding of the city, its town square and wall, its outer defense, would not be easy, but it would have to be accomplished in the face of great opposition, even in troublous times. And further, Gabriel revealed that the day that the command is given to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, including its wall, its outer defense, until the coming of Messiah the Prince to Israel would be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That is 69 weeks. I just hate it in Daniel chapter 9 that they translated the Hebrew word there uh, that is there, in, they translated it weeks. It isn't weeks. Literally, it is sevens. And so the, the, the angel Gabriel is talking about the fact that from the day that the command is given to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, including its wall, until the coming of Messiah the Prince, would be seven sevens, and 62 sevens, a total of 69 sevens. 
Now, the 69 sevens spoken of in verse 25 are considered to refer to years by virtually every Bible scholar for the simple reason that the context of the entire chapter is dealing with years. Daniel is uh, considering the fact that Israel had been sold into bondage. They've been taken captive into Babylonian captivity and that that would be a period of 70 years. And, uh, and, and if we understand the 69 sevens to refer to years, as we should, then that comes to a total of 483 years. The prophecy was given at the time to Daniel while he was in Babylon. And the Babylonian calendar, our calendar year today, is 365 uh, days in a calendar year. Under Babylon, the calendar year was 360 days. And so if you take those 483 years and you multiply them by a calendar year of 360, you come up with a total of 173,000 880 days. And thus the Lord is revealing to Daniel from the day that a decree is given to rebuild and to restore Jerusalem, including the building of the wall, you can pull out a calendar, start marking days, and 173,880 days from that decree, Messiah the Prince will be revealed as such to Israel. So the critical question becomes... Where in the Old Testament did a king make a decree to go forth and to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, including its street and its outer defense, its walls? And the answer is found in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, where a king by the name of Artaxerxes gave a decree to Nehemiah to not only rebuild the city of Jerusalem, but also to rebuild its wall. King Artaxerxes started his reign in 465 B.C., and we're told that he gave this decree in the 20th year of his reign, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that he made this uh, decree for the city to, of Jerusalem to be rebuilt and the outer wall, and he made that decree uh, to Nehemiah himself. Artaxerxes began his reign in 465 B.C., so the 20th year of his reign was 445 B.C., and, and whenever a month is mentioned in the Old Testament, like the month of Nisan, as a means of dating, it always refers to the first day of the month. So here this uh, decree is given on the first day of the month of Nisan, 445 B.C., which we know to be March 14th, 445 B.C. If you add that 173,880 days to March 14th, 445 B.C., and you take into account leap years and, and the changes from B.C. to A.D. and all of these things, you come to March, you come to April 6, 32 AD, the very day that Jesus made his triumphal entry 
into Jerusalem. And then all of this makes sense to us. God had given in the Old Testament Scriptures to the nation of Israel the very day that the Messiah would reveal himself to the nation as the promised Messiah of the Jews and Savior of the world. And this is why Jesus cried out in Luke chapter 19, verse 42, if you had known, even you, especially on this your day, he was referring to the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, and yet despite giving them the very day of the coming of their Messiah, overall the Jewish people were completely ignorant of it And they did not know, in the words of verse 44, the time of their visitation. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, Gabriel went on to declare to Daniel that following the triumphal entry of Messiah, that the Messiah would not establish his physical kingdom immediately at that time on the earth, but instead he would be cut off, that is, that he would be killed, just as Jesus was crucified four days after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It was unthinkable in the Jewish mind that the Messiah could ever come into the world and die before he established his kingdom in the world. They couldn't get their mind around that. And yet that's exactly what happened, just as prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. And astonishingly enough, it was the religious Jews themselves who fulfilled the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, being most instrumental in arranging and accomplishing the Messiah's death. God further declared that Messiah would be cut off there in Daniel, but not for himself. And so Jesus did die on the cross, but he did not die for his own sins, but he died for our sins. Isaiah chapter 53, surely he, that is the Messiah, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, not his own. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity, iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And in Daniel chapter 9, all of that, a perfect description of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and his crucifixion in 528 B.C almost 600 years before the event occurred. And through that angelic messenger, God gave the very day of Jesus' triumphal entry and what followed it later in that week, the crucifixion of Christ. 
One of the interesting things about that prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 is that it is a time-sensitive prophecy. No one can fulfill it today. No one can come on the scene in Israel, in Modesto, anywhere in the world. No one can come on the scene today and declare themselves to be the Messiah and be taken seriously in the light of the prophetic revelation of the Old Testament because they would be 2,000 years late for the fulfilling of the prophecy given concerning the Messiah in Daniel chapter 9. What's the point? The point is this. If Jesus isn't the Messiah, nobody is the Messiah. There is no Messiah for the world. There is no Savior for the world. There is none to die for our sins and provide us with the forgiveness of sins. If Jesus is not that one, then no one is that one. Because only he can come on the scene in human history and declare himself to be the promised Messiah on the basis of the Scriptures. In the words of the New Testament, according to the Scriptures. And in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, it goes on to describe the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by a Roman general by the name of Titus would accomplish that in 70 A.D. All of it fulfilled as Gabriel spoke to the prophet Daniel. And then in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it speaks of a 70th week. Seventy-sevens are determined upon your people, Daniel. Sixty-nine sevens. Sixty-nine of those seventy are used to date from the time that that decree goes forth until Messiah reveals himself as such to your people. But God holds a seven-year period in reserve. The time known is the time of Jacob's trouble during... and known more familiar to us is the tribulation period during which the Antichrist will do the abomination that causes desolation. He will set himself up and demand to be worshipped as the Messiah of the Jews, by the Jews. Jesus spoke of it as a future event. And at the end of that seven-year period is Jesus' second coming, and then he will establish his kingdom age in the whole world for a thousand years. And then all of the things prophesied in Daniel chapter 9 verse 24 will mark the whole world. Righteousness will characterize the whole world that we live in. Now because this prophecy so perfectly identifies Jesus as the Messiah, some of the Jewish rabbis today, because they don't want to acknowledge him as the Jewish Messiah. They attempt to date this prophecy from King Cyrus's decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem as is recorded in Ezra chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. And the problem with their attempt to date from that particular decree 
is that that decree was a decree to rebuild the temple, not the city and not the wall, the very things that the angel Gabriel was very specific about in Daniel chapter 9. And what they are attempting is a very, very deliberate attempt to ignore the obvious of the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, and that is that Jesus is the promised Messiah according to the Scriptures, and no one else can be other than him. Now, why in the world would God put these kind of prophecies concerning Jesus in the Bible? Why would he do it? To show off? Look what I can do and you can't do? No, of course not. He did it for you. Because he loves you and he loves me so much that he doesn't want a single one of us in this room to fail to recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah and Savior of the world. And so that this morning we would put our faith in him for salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. And to know that when we do that, we are not doing it on the basis of blind faith, which so many people accuse us of as Christians. But we do it on the basis of reason. It is no mistake in the book of Acts, when the apostles went from one city to the next city to the next city to the next city, establishing churches, that when they went into these cities that we are told that they reasoned with the Jews from the Scriptures. They gave them reasons for believing in Jesus as the promised Messiah. And the Bible is filled with prophecies like this. So filled with prophecies like this that unbelief is the unreasonable position concerning Christ. Faith is the only reasonable response to but one prophecy concerning Jesus in the Old Testament. And he fulfilled 300 of them in his first coming. The rest he'll fulfill in his second coming. It is unreasonable and painfully unnecessary for a single person in this room and in this world from the vantage point of heaven to fail, to recognize Jesus for who he is, and to put our faith in him. And that's why Jesus wept over Jerusalem, knowing that the judgment that they were going to face 
for their rejection of him was so unnecessary. And so he would weep in the face of any unbelief in a single one of our hearts here today. And the light of all of the effort that God has gone to to make us recognize Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior, as the only one worthy of that position in our life. And Jesus would weep at the rejection of that when the stakes are even higher, when the judgment is for eternity. Several years ago, a friend in the church and I were talking And he shared a dream that he had concerning the white throne judgment of God, that final judgment that's spoken of in the book of Revelation, where all whose names are not written in the book of life will one day stand before Jesus. And because they never put their faith in him, never ever grabbed a hold of God's solution to our sin, which separates us from a relationship with God and ultimately will separate us from heaven. And at that great judgment, as those that have rejected Christ are brought before Christ, he said in his dream that Jesus was weeping as he executed the judgment of sending these folks into an eternal judgment. I thought that was very interesting. It impacted me. And I don't know that it will be so. But in light of this passage in Luke chapter 19, I don't doubt its possibility that if a single one of us in this room one day stands before him and he is forced to judge us for our sin because we rejected so clearly described and so wonderfully pointed to a Savior, that yes, He will judge us because in His righteousness and in His nature, He must do that or He is not a holy God. But He will weep over the fact that our unbelief in the face of such evidence has forced Him to do the one thing He never wants to do in a single life. The Bible teaches that today is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Why? Because today is the only day that we have. I don't have today. I mean, I have today. I don't have tomorrow. I don't have this Tuesday. I may not be in this pulpit. I may be in heaven before next Sunday. Somebody else would be teaching you on Sunday. I don't know. What we have is today. But today is all we need to be saved. And the Holy Spirit is declaring related to this to never put salvation off another day because that other day is not a day you're guaranteed of. You have this moment to be saved. You have this moment to put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And if we will use this moment properly, then we don't need 
another day. Today is the day of salvation. And that's the heart of God and the message of God to each and every one of us here this morning that hasn't yet trusted in him. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for so reasoned and reasonable a faith. Thank you for all that went into, Lord, the prophetic witness of the Old Testament to the life of Jesus so that not a single one of us would fail to recognize him for who and what he is, Lord, from the vantage point of heaven and who and what you want to make him to be in each one of our lives. Thank you, Lord, for so clear a picture of him. And so wonderful a picture of his heart for our soul and for our salvation. That he didn't get angry, that he didn't huff and puff and he didn't, but that he wept in the face of unbelief and the light of such evidence for faith. Thank you, Jesus, for your heart, for our soul. Thank you for valuing our soul long before we ever did. Thank you for a love for us that is willing to do that. And I want to ask as we just sit here this morning in this big living room, if there's anyone here this morning who say, I've never put my trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins.